If, if God has been good to you, say amen. amen. That's, that's not a cliche. That's, that's not me trying to find the strength just to get going this morning. But I think all of us could, could, could with a resounding voice, say amen because God has been good to us. Yes, sir. You just have to look around and see the people that are seated, seated next to you. It might be a spouse. It might be a sibling, it might be a child, it might be a parent, it might be a neighbor, it might be a friend. Of course, we know by this point it's, it's family, the Christian family, and so God has been, has been so good to us. I'm really mindful of Joshua this morning as I, as I look across here and I, I see him in, in a wheelchair. Uh, though he's in a wheelchair and though his, his body has been broken, him, his spirit hasn't been. And it's amazing how, how God is able to work in the midst of tragedy and in the midst of pain. And we know that we have an adversary the devil that will do everything within his power and influence to, to just break us in every single way that matters, in mind, body, spirit, and in soul. But yet still we have a God that's able in the midst of the pain that we would go through, in the midst of the calamities that we face, we have a God that's able to empower us and to give us the strength that we need to carry on. And so I'm really thankful to God this morning that he would have spared the life of this young man, Joshua, and, and in so doing, he really spared the life of his entire family and those who knew him well, that he could be here today to worship with us and to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let me do this as we get into our text. Our text is from the book of Luke chapter 10. And I want you to know that the topic this morning is going to be somewhat introspective. It is going to be somewhat of a heavy item point. It's, it, it is going to be one of the more difficult messages that I engage in at least over these past few weeks is going to be, be one of those, you know, let's, let's give Brother Morgan an, an air uh, and, and think about what he said type of sermon before we, we roast him, uh, you know, at, at lunch or over the coffee table. But the topic I've decided to speak on this morning, the title I've given to my message is, Can We... Can we be real about it? Can we be real about it? The Christian journey or experience is a lifestyle that touches on every aspect of the human being. The mind, the body, the spirit, and the soul are called upon in creating not only balance, but also growth as the believer learns on a daily basis to become more and more like Jesus. As human beings, we can become complacent at times if we are not careful and forget that every day presents an opportunity to go deeper and deeper in our walk with God as we partner with him in the mission of saving souls. To this end, we must appreciate the fact 
that our salvation is connected not only to God's saving grace toward us, but also being an extension at the same time of that grace to others. Let me repeat that. We have to therefore appreciate that the fact is our salvation that we have is not only connected to God's saving grace toward us, but also we need to recognize that this saving grace, we also are an extension of that saving grace that God extended to us towards others as well. We often allow culture and thinking and the thinking of the times to dictate our spiritual beliefs and practices. Often creates in a thinking a belief system and practice that blinds us into stagnation and lack of transformation that is actually taking place. To this end, church no longer becomes a place where we are challenged to grow as soldiers of the cross, but rather it becomes a place where people are made to feel comfortable and any sign of threat to that comfort is met by attendees moving to somewhere else. And, and really, that's me saying it and putting it nicely. We have become a people who are comfortable and we, we don't like change. But the funny thing about life is life consists on a daily basis of change. So not only as human beings, but as members of the body of Christ, we have to learn to appreciate and navigate these moments of change in life. Oftentimes, Jesus puts us in positions. Oftentimes, God puts us into positions. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit moves us into positions of discomfort so that we could find a place of growth. Mediocrity for us have become such of a norm and it becomes a norm in a place where we stagnate and in a place of a plateau. In other words, we have become comfortable. And yet still, the call has been made to not be comfortable, but the call has been made to challenge us to grow individually, to grow as a family and to grow as a church. I hope that as I look at our text this morning, we can take a hard look at ourselves as individuals and as a church as we come to grips with one of the most powerful yet heartbreaking parables that Jesus actually shares throughout entire, his entire ministry. So as we get our way into our text this morning, I want us to look at this text because it's a powerful text, but at the same time, there are some details that Jesus shares that is simply heartbreaking and I believe is relevant even to the position that the church is in today in 2021. As we think about where we are at, there are some specific details of this particular text I want us to take note of. And in this particular text, I want us to look at three things. And as we look at these three things, these three things will ultimately make the point, the points or the basis of our lesson for today. Number one, I want us to look at some key characters. Number two, I want us to look at some key characteristics. And number three, I want us to look at the key command. 
So as we go through this particular text, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, we'll be looking at this text, we'll be focusing on this text, we will be dissecting this text, and I want us to look at some key characters, some key characteristics, and the key command that we see in this particular text. So here, Luke presents this scene, and I want us to appreciate something about the writing of all of these gospel accounts, there are some events in the gospel accounts that if it were to be taken away and stripped from the text, it does not necessarily take away anything from the overall teaching of the text. It, if you were to remove a couple of these um, situations and stories and historical accounts of the life of Jesus, if you were to pull away one or two of these uh, occasions and accounts, it doesn't take away from the totality of the gospel. And so that is to say, I believe that this particular incident is placed here by Luke through inspiration of the Holy Spirit for a particular purpose and a particular reason. That might sound blasphemous to some, but I want you to appreciate that for what it is. If you were to take the account of the Good Samaritan out of the confines of the book of Luke, it does not negate the fact that Jesus Christ came in, the, on, in this earth through a virgin birth. It doesn't take away from the fact that he teached uh, and he taught while on this earth for a period of about three years. It doesn't take away from the fact that he would have done miracle signs and wonders. If you remove the account of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter number 10, verse 25 through 37, it doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus walked as a godly man. It doesn't take away from the fact that he loved all men. It doesn't take away from the fact that he went to the cross, that he died on the cross, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose on the third day. It doesn't take away from the fact that he ascended back to the Father and he's awaiting the time until he should return again. I'm just trying to help us to recognize that there are some things in the Bible that are there for a reason, but if you remove it, it doesn't take away from the overall blessing that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I believe that Luke has put in this and he has placed this situation here with this lawyer, this, this man who knew the law, this man who represented the law. Luke puts this in for a particular purpose within the confines of not just his compilation of the life and the events of Jesus, but the teaching that he has in mind as well. So as we look at this particular text, I want us to take note of very quickly, and this is a very familiar passage to us, so I'll be able to streamline this throughout this really quickly. Notice, notice Jesus encounters this, this lawyer in verse number 25, and the scripture would tell us that this lawyer comes to Jesus with a question, but in as much as he comes to Jesus with a question, sometimes we can have the right question, but we don't necessarily have the right motive. A lot of times people are asking, who is Jesus? And uh, do you believe in God? Is the Bible real? And, and sometimes people are asking these questions not out of a genuine sincerity to learn, but people are, are looking for an occasion to, to stumble or, 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 or to cause you to trip up. And so oftentimes what happens, even in the world today, people have questions. And they ask the right questions, but their motive isn't sometimes often sincere. Have you ever been in a Bible class where 
somebody asked a question and you knew, you know, or you knew that they knew the answer, but they were asking a question to create chaos. God knows we, we, we've started to study the book of 1 Timothy and uh, by his grace, we, it, it took us a little while, but we are finally in chapter number 2 and, uh, you, you know, we, we, just concluded, we just concluded verses 1 through verse number 8 uh, where he's talking about, you know, pray, uh, you, you know, with all prayer and all supplication, thanksgiving and intercession, he says, pray for all men and all those who are in authority and he makes his way down into verse number 8, but from verse number 9 onward, we, we are going to get into some tricky stuff because because now in verse number 9 onward, he's going to talk about men lifting up holy hands. And, and, and there's some consensus as to what that means. Now, from verse number 9 onward, he's going to talk about women also not adorning themselves in costly, uh, uh, you know, gold and, and all, all that kind of stuff and costly apparel, but in modesty and shamefacedness and sobriety. We're going to talk about that stuff. Now, in verses 9 through, through, through the rest of chapter number 2 of 1 Timothy chapter number 1, he's going to talk a little bit about, about women staying silent in the church. And we're going to have to talk about some of these things. But some people, as they engage in some of these dialogues and these classes, they may have the right question, but it won't be coming from the right motive and heart. So this, 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 this lawyer, he's coming to Jesus. He is called a lawyer for a reason. It's not Halloween where he's dressing up like Superman and he doesn't have any powers. It's, it's not like Halloween where he puts on a costume of a police officer, but here is a nine-year-old who doesn't have a certificate or a badge saying that I'm a police officer. No, no, no. He didn't have this title lawyer simply because he knew some things about the law. He was called a lawyer for a specific reason. I want us to appreciate that titles are important. Repeat that with me. Titles are important. Titles are important. When somebody identifies themselves as a police officer, that says that this person has been trained. Not only does that say, say that this person has been trained, but the, the motto of every single police service I know in, 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 in all of my life is to protect and serve. So when you hear police officer, you think that if you are in danger, if there is a police officer around and you go to that person, you ought to think or you would at least think that now I'm safe or I have some safety. You don't want to think that a police officer, somebody who is meant to protect and to serve, could victimize you. But sometimes it, it happens. You don't want to believe that individuals who are preachers and ministers of the gospel who are supposed to have your spiritual and every other well-being in mind could abuse a child or could, could, could run away with women and could do all the things unimaginable because we understand that a, a gospel preacher or a minister of, of the word ought to have a certain behavior and characteristic about him or herself. If you were to think about a judge standing there with, with their hammer sitting down and, and listening to these cases. You want to believe that this person is going to be as impartial as they take interview all this evidence that comes their way, that this person is going to be, do the best possible job to keep things in order and to keep things in check and to allow justice to prevail. But when you have corrupt judges, that puts questions in our minds. I'm just trying to help us to understand that that these positions and these titles matter. 
So when you and I say that we are Christians, that ought to mean something. That doesn't just mean to say, well, when people ask you, well, what type of person are you religiously feel? You say, well, I'm a Christian. Today, no, that means as I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christ follower somewhat. I do read my Bible from time to time. You know, when I do remember if I feel guilty, uh, you know, I might say a prayer. I've learned to pray for meals, you know, pray grace before uh, meals. I, I, I've learned if I forget to pray in the morning when I get off the bed, I've learned to try not to go to bed at night, you, you know, without praying. And so this idea of Christian has become so commonplace that the world says, well, all of us really are Christians if we believe in Jesus, if we give some type of verbal, verbal allegiance to Jesus, then all of us, in a sense, are Christians. But if I dress up in a police officer suit and I go around saying that I'm a, a policeman, if I don't have all the credentials to prove that I am a true officer of the law, it doesn't make me an officer of the law. You might be married and you're a husband or you're a wife and by virtue of that contract that was made, you are a husband or a wife. You do have a spouse, but just saying you are a spouse or just having that contractual arrangement makes no sense unless you act the role out. So here in this instance, we have this man. He is a lawyer. He is one who knows the law, but yet still he comes to Jesus. And Luke is careful in recording that he comes to Jesus to test Jesus. And it's amazing how sometimes the reality is we could want to test Jesus, but ultimately Jesus throws it back at us and he puts us to the test. For some of the older brethren here, maybe you could remember, and if you're honest with yourselves, you can remember when you, you, you went through a period of rebelliousness at you know, the age of 16 and 17. I, I find it strange that sometimes we have now this younger generation that's going through now their, their time of trouble and their time of difficulty. They are struggling to find their own identity, and oftentimes this is the time, 15, 16, 17, 18, this is the time where they, ma they make the most mistakes. And I find it strange that some of us who are so far removed, who have, be, who have become silver-haired and white-haired, who have spent a lot of time on this earth, who was once in this position to recognize that we did some stuff, I find it hard to recognize and to believe that now because you are in your 70s and you are in your 80s, you, you t I say you, I don't mean you here, of course, but I'm generalizing it, all right? Uh, you, you know, it's so easy to turn our noses down and up at people and say, well, this generation is so terrible. Well, probably the reason why this generation is going the way that it is is because we're not spending enough time older generation with the younger generation. Probably the reason why this generation is going the way that it is is because we don't have older women that are mentoring younger women. I don't care if they're your blood, flesh, or blood or not. It's our calling to help mentor and to help take people from where they are to where God needs them to be. 
And I need for you to see that even though in this text, this man comes to Jesus, this man who was supposed to know the Lord, this man who was supposed to know better, I need for us to appreciate that Jesus knew where this man was emotionally. Jesus knew where this man was mentally. Jesus knew where this man was spiritually. This man was a divisive man, but Jesus doesn't just dismiss him. Jesus sticks with him for a little bit. Don't just be quick to dismiss people even though you might know they are being divisive. Don't, don't be too quick to just disregard people, even though you know that their motive may not be right. Because the moment that you have with them would, might be an opportunity for you to help them come to a better understanding and knowledge of who they are and who God is. So Jesus, in this particular text, is going to display some, some grace. <laughs> Jesus, in this text, is going to display some mercy on his way to teaching some things. I want you to look at this with me really quickly as we hasten to our close. So in this particular text, the question that is asked is a valid one. And the question that is asked is one that's very vital and important even for us today. Notice this in verse number 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do? A different translation would say, What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And I need for us to appreciate right here. I could, uh, as a matter of fact, I might just stop right here for the, for the, for the rest of, of, of our message because I want us to appreciate that the question here has to do with life after this life. The question here has to do with What's going to take place after we have closed our physical eyes? It is a question of eternal life. The Jews had some semblance of understanding that there was life beyond the grave. Not only did they have some semblance of understanding that there was life beyond the grave, but they understood that there were some things that needed to be done in order to receive this eternal grace or this eternal life. Notice the question he asked. In him asking the question, he gave some information that he knew. He came asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Well, even though he asked a question, he showed them and he showed Jesus that he knew some things. He knew that he needed to do in order to get. You guys with me? He's asking about eternal life. He knows and he believes in an afterlife. But as he asks the question, he also confirms some things that he clearly already knows. Not only do I believe in an eternal life, not only do I believe in an afterlife, but at this particular point in time, I know that I need to do in order to get. How many people here believe in an afterlife? How many people here believe in the concept of eternal life? Lift your hands right up in the sky. And so his belief in eternal life was attached to the reality that in order to receive eternal life, you have to do something in this one. So he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In order for me to have eternal life, there is some stuff I need to be doing 
in this one. There is no such thing as a lazy Christian. Let me repeat that one more time. There is no such thing as a lazy Christian. Let me repeat that one more time. There is no such thing as a lazy Christian. Let me repeat that one more time. We have, we have, we have four, four sections, four pews. There is no such thing as a lazy Christian. That is to say, as people of God, we are to always find ourselves busy in the work at hand. Never get comfortable where you are. If you have to grow, you always have to constantly be pushing yourself to go beyond where you are at. If you have to excel, you have to constantly be challenged to go deeper than where you are. So for us, there is no such thing as a lazy, compliant, or I should rather say comfortable Christian. So this man comes and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I want us to appreciate this about this particular text. We, we, we know the scenario that Jesus gives out with the Good Samaritan. I'm going to rush through that. But I want us to see this in the text. Jesus asked him, what does the law say? Have you read the law? And of course, the, the reality is he would have read the law. He knew the law for he was a lawyer. He responds with this. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I'm just going to fly through this, but watch this. Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. In other words, you already have the answer that you need in order to inherit eternal life. So Jesus said, you have answered rightly. All you are missing is the doing. So Jesus says to him, you know the answer to your own question. The problem you have is the perfecting of the answer. You know the answer to your own problem. That sounds familiar. You know the answer to your own question. You know the answer to your own problem. All you are missing is the performance of it. Have you ever been in a relationship struggle? I'm not, I'm not talking husband and wife yet, but have you ever been uh, dating someone and had some struggles with that person? A anybody here want to, you know, just be real to, to say that you, you've dated people that you're not married to right now, and, and in the moment of dating them, you knew that it wasn't going anywhere. You knew, you, you, you knew that you had some questions about this relationship, but the truth is you already had the answer to the question that you had. Any, anybody here willing to be honest and, and, and say you, you, you've been in some situations where you question some things, but the truth is you already know the response, but you, you are trying to find justification for why you are where you are. What you were looking for was somebody to help you stay because you wanted to stay here, but deep down you knew that this is not where you were supposed to be. So oftentimes we ask these questions having the answers, but it's not that we don't already have the answers. It's sometimes we are, we're just not doing what we know the real answer is. So Jesus tells this man, you know the truth. You've answered well. So go and do it. Here is where I want us to focus on and we'll be closed. So he says, at least Luke takes 
occasion to narrate this part in verse 29. But he wanting to justify himself. Justify himself of what? That's going to be the question. Luke takes occasion by inspiration of his spirit to narrate this particular point here in verse number 39 to say he trying to justify himself therefore asks the new question who then is my neighbor so apparently again i'm telling you sometimes when you try to test jesus jesus you, you just give away things about yourself time and time and time again in, in the first instance he asked jesus what must i do to inherit eternal life it was clear that he knew what he needed to do it, it was clear that he knew he needed to do some things in order to have eternal life no it's clear by his question who then is my neighbor that he didn't necessarily have a problem in loving God but his problem was defining who his neighbor was so as he takes occasion now to ask Jesus the second question the first time he comes to test Jesus teacher let me see if you know anything about the law the second time he comes now to ask Jesus a question trying to justify himself have you ever been in a situation where you, you, you ask a question to somebody, you got a response, you know the response was true, but then now because you, you've, the, the, the response met you in a position where you recognize, you know what, I'm the one currently at fault, you ask a next question trying to justify the position where you are right now. I, I can tell you it's, it's, it's always happened to me, and for some reason often happens between children and parents. Where the, the, the child asks the parent one question, the parent answers. And the child now is exposed for, for who they are and what they are in that moment. And now to try and justify themselves and to take shame out of their eyes, they ask the next question. Happens all the time. Happens all the time because we don't like to accept sometimes truth or failure. We don't like to accept that sometimes we are not where we are supposed to be. Follow me on this and we'll close really quickly. Watch this. So he comes now trying to justify himself because it is apparent that though he claimed to love God, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, it's apparent that the difficulty he had wasn't necessarily in giving allegiance to God. The difficulty he had was in finding out exactly who was his neighbor that he needed to love unconditionally. I don't think it's by chance that Jesus uses a lawyer, or at least Luke records a lawyer as being the one to ask Jesus this question. Because what would have transpired historically speaking is that the Jewish nation, even though they did have particular hierarchies, religious leaders, priests, high priests, uh, different individuals throughout the, the Jewish nation, the truth is what began to happen were people began to click up within the confines of the nation of Israel. So depending on your clique, your clique determined who and how you loved. So if you were a Pharisee, you learned to love a Pharisee unconditionally. If you were a scribe, you learned to love a scribe a particular way. And so based on your clique, you loved based on who was in your circle. You know what's the sad thing about that if we think about it from a church perspective? Sometimes we could have cliques and develop cliques in the church. That's right. To where depending on what your clique is, 
You could love and you could, you, you could dispense time, effort, energy, and money depending on the clique that you are in. But guess what? You won't dispense the same type of time, effort, energy, and love to somebody outside of your group. It's difficult because I'm telling you, we need to be real about it. If we're not careful, we could find ourselves in cliques and we love unconditionally in the clique. But when it's outside of the clique, I don't have the type of time to give to you as if I would have given to somebody whom I'm close to. Church, let's be careful with cliques because cliques will put us somewhat in the same position as this. This lawyer, but I have to move on because my time is gone. Watch this. So Jesus, knowing what this man's situation was, he gives this parable of the Samaritan. And in the Samaritan, we have these four characters. We have the man who fell among thieves. I'm going to do this really quickly. We have a priest. We have a Levite. But also we have the Samaritan. And what's interesting about this is... Oftentimes, if, if we are honest with ourselves, when we read the Good Samaritan account, we often view ourselves in the story as the man who fell among thieves. Because the truth is, sometimes we are beaten. Sometimes we are battered. Don't we feel that way sometimes, emotionally speaking, beaten, battered, and bruised, and left for half dead? How many of us are going to get up uh, tomorrow to go to work, and you already feel like if it's Friday? Life just has a way of beating us up, battering us up, stripping us naked and leaving us as if we were dead. We oftentimes associate with and connect with the man who fell among thieves. Just stick with me for a little bit more, church. But then within the confines of this account, it's not just the man who fell among thieves, but we also have the priest and the Levites, or the Levite. Both of whom I want to love together because both of whom had spiritual roles within the confines of the nation of Israel. And so Jesus used the, the terminology as he gives his parable by chance after this man was left for dead, by chance after this man was robbed, by chance after this man was stripped. Jesus uses the terminology very clear, clearly in his distinction. It's, he says, by chance a priest came across the man. What's, what's really funny about the usage of that term by chance is that the Hebrew people did not believe in what we consider today to be chance. If there was an occasion of something where we could call chance today, they didn't believe in chance. They believed in providence. So if something happened the way that it is happening or did happen, they believed that God ultimately had a firm hand in this taking place. They did not believe in chance, but Jesus is using this, this language that he ultimately knows to, to understand. Listen, this man fell among thieves. This man was shipped and left for dead, but here comes a priest. The truth is, the priest may not have necessarily decided in his journey to, to, to come to that point, but for some reason, he made his way to, to the place where he could see the man. Sometimes we, we take detours in life, but I want us to understand it's not really about coincidence. God is leading us through these detours for a particular reason. So he comes across the man. You know what he does? He sees, he peeps, and then he tiptoes and he, he, he goes the other way. Then comes the Levite. Now the priest 
what, 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 what do their work inside the temple. If you were in Old Testament days, they would, they would be inside the tabernacle. They were not supposed to go past the, the veil. Only the high priest could go through the veil and into the most holy place. But, but the priests, they would be the ones that would do service and, and, and perform worship tasks inside the holy place. Now, the Levite, however, you need to be careful because even, even though you, 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 you had these Levites who were spiritually minded, I want us to appreciate this. Here comes the Levite. The Levites aren't necessarily priests. All priests were Levites. But here comes the Levite. At the very least, he could have prayed for the man. But he comes, sees the man, crosses the street, and goes the other way. But the Samaritan, and I know I'm taking way too much time on this, but the Samaritan, an individual who the Jews look down on, an individual who the Jews often didn't associate with. Isn't it funny how life works sometimes? The people who you sometimes expect have your back, and the people who sometimes you think is going to be there for you and help take care of you. Ultimately, it's, it's not those individuals that sometimes that come and swoop in and help you out in your moment of need. Isn't it amazing sometimes that you, 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 you could be among people and even though you are among people, they, 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 they might know somewhat of what you're going through, but, but at the same time, they don't really reach a hand out to help. Could we be real about it? Could, could I say some things that you guys could think through? Let me, let me apologize to my wow, my wow people, but could I, could I say some things? The duty that the Christian has, if you don't realize the story of the Good Samaritan, the duty that the Christian person has is to love mankind so much it doesn't matter whether it's their next door neighbor or somebody that might be an enemy the duty that the Christian has is to love mankind so much that when it is we see a need we are compelled by compassion to help take care of that need not every single person might have a physical need but every single person has a spiritual one. Not every single person has a physical need, but every single person has a spiritual one. I'm trying to help us to recognize that as the people of God, there might be times where we are able to take care of and alleviate some of the physical needs of, of, of the people in our community and neighborhoods. But believe you me, there is always work to be done as far as the spiritual needs are concerned. So we, the church doesn't have time to be complacent because we are always supposed to be on mission. Yes, we might have taken care of some food needs, but people need spiritual needs. Yes, we might clothe some people, but people need to be clothed in Christ. Yes, we might have given people some money to take care of their bills, but I'm trying to help us to recognize that every single day there is a soul out there that's dying and lost and needs Jesus. So we need to be people who are not so much 
about ourselves. We need to be people that are out there looking for souls that have been stripped. We need to be people who are concerned about people who have been wounded. We need to be people who are concerned about people who are left for dead. Watch this. Stand with me, I'm done. Stand with me, I'm done. Let me, let me, let me do this. Let me do this. Stand with me, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. I'm done. That was the first and only time I said that, right? We have some counters. Watch, watch this, watch this. I said in my introduction that we have allowed culture to determine how we interpret scripture. We live in a culture that love labels too. I've never seen a people hate a system like the United States of America like this. The minute you just say socialism, people go crazy. All you have to say is socialism, and all of a sudden you, you just pick up traction on, 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 on online and in person because socialism is bad, and we don't want to be like this country and that country and this country and that country. But at its, at its core, I'm not talking socialism. I'm not talking capitalism. Take that out of your mind. I'm saying the minute we hear a word or we hear a phrase or we hear a concept, we associate those things with a particular system. Jesus, in his teaching, says we ought to be able to take care of one another. We ought to be able to meet every need that the human being has. That's not socialism. That's Christianity. So as the church, we can't be so concerned with defining our Christian experience and belief and practices based on these, these cultural uh, ideologies and thinking. Listen, we need to strip ourselves from that nonsense and the church just needs to work. Let the world do what the world wants to do. Let the world say what the world wants to say. But guess what? The Christians, we put our hands to the plow and if there is a mouth to feed, we feed. If there is a back to clothe, we clothe. If there is somebody that has been wounded and destitute and naked, guess what? We take care of those needs. But apart from those physical needs, church, every single minute of every single day, Christians ought to be concerned about the souls of the people that are around us. We don't have time to kick our feet up and say we've done this for 30 years. We don't have time to kick back and fold our arms and act like if everything is okay. No, no, no. You have a neighbor that hasn't given their life to Christ yet. You have a family member that haven't given their life to Christ yet. You have a friend that haven't given their life to Christ yet. There are brethren here that are struggling. So he says we need to be real. And busy about getting everybody. Listen, lock, lock, lock shoulders, lock arms, 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 lock arms. If, if, if you're far from somebody, get close to somebody, lock arms. Yes, I know it's COVID. Roast me, roast me during the lunchtime period. Yes, I know it's COVID. Lock arms. Repeat after me. No one. State with feeling, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. No one, say it, Kim. 
gets left behind. No one, say it, come on guys. No one gets left behind. I don't care what your clique is. I don't care what your family is. I don't care your background. I don't care your race. I don't care your politics. No one, say it. No one gets left behind. So when Jesus teaches about the Good Samaritan, he is teaching about loving people as much as we claim. You guys got it? As much as we claim to love God. One more time, no one gets left behind.